the book writers resource podcast the book writers resource podcast Hello, welcome to another episode of the Book Writers Resource Podcast with me, Ian Pringle. Mandy will be along later on, but first of all, I had the opportunity of meeting up with Steve Attridge. We had a really good conversation. Steve has experience of writing for film and television and various different novels. And I started by asking Steve about his most recent project, The Urban Fox. Okay, um, yeah, it's called The the Urban Fox Project, because I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully going to write four or five books. Yeah, the, the first, the very first book is called The Urban Fox Investigates, and, and that will be out um, in about a week's time, um, uh, available on Amazon or from me direct at my, my website. Um, I, it's, it began in a, I was sitting in a pub called The Urban Fox, and there was a very beautiful photograph of, of, of a fox and a model of a fox too with a kind of fox face and I thought well that's that's kind of interesting and then I on the way home driving on the way home a fox went across the road so I slowed down and it stopped and looked at me and then very slowly walked on and when I got home I, I woke up early hours of the morning with just with a couple of ideas for a story about the urban fox um, and I'm, I'm quite passionate about animals anyway. And I thought, well, the running theme throughout these books could be how animals and creatures have to life. Clearly, foxes are doing it very well, or some of them are. But I thought I, I, I suddenly got a, a constellation of characters. You know, there's Reg, the albino hedgehog. There's Doris Dupont, the matriarchal hen who keeps a log of all the animals that come and go in the town. So it's, it's the serious part is about animals having to engage with urban life and find different ways of surviving as the countryside shrinks. But, um, you know, I, I also, I, I, they're also playful and full of fun, I hope. And who, who are they for, these the books? What sort of age group? Uh, the, the, the books are from, I, I would say, seven, eight year, seven, seven years old on onwards up to 93, I hope. I try not to write down to children, so my, my aim is always to entertain the child, but also hopefully create something that's fun for adults too. And and the books, are they, um, are, are these, you're sort of working on characters, are they, are they kind of, what sort of length are they for people that are reading them? Um, the, the books are about, they're about 12,000 words, you know, 40, 50 pages, there, there. I've got, I, I've got an illustrator called Jeremy, Jeremy Hammond, who has just been brilliant, and he's he's put so much work into this with me, and we had great fun. You know, he would come round to where I live, and we went through all the Beatrix Potter books to see how she matched illustrations with with text, and we also, when we were trying, when after he'd read the book, he said, "I'm trying to see the characters." So, for example, we went through pictures of of um of actors trying to match a face to a character and then he would animalize it so for example there there was a there was a kind of rather lovable craggy old bulldog in in um 
in, in, in the book. And uh, so we were looking and we found a photograph, Sid James, the actor. And I said, that's him. And so uh, James went away and drew some beautiful pictures of kind of a, a hybrid of a bulldog and Sid James to get those characters. And what I loved about doing that was that it seems to me that's what, uh, certainly what kids do anyway, but, you know, adults too, is we anthropomorphize. We we give characteristics to uh to, to our pets and to, to animals. We give them names. We talk to them. You know, we, we characterise them. And that's what I was trying to do all the, all, all the way through, to give these characters very, spe- you know, these animal characters very specific characteristics. So um, the urban fox is a kind of mix of the artful dodger and James Bond. And, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he, I had models for them all. Um, and it's interesting you say that and that and that the the concept of this story is that these animals are adapting themselves to to the kind of the human world and then you've worked with your um illustrator and the illustrator has kind of adapted some humans and anthropomorphized them to kind of into the characters and i guess i mean i i'm i went to drama school and at drama school when we trained as an actor some directors some acting teachers encourage us to find animalistic qualities in the characters that were created so there's a sort of full circle there in some way in terms of how we all um respond and how animals and humans interact in that way it's fascinating how that's come out through your through your interactions in the book and with other artists absolutely yeah i, I mean and i think it's and, and I, don't, I don't think i'm particularly unique in this but i i think it's a it's just a perennial theme in my in my in my life and my writing life. I mean, certainly as a child, I I felt much more comfortable, I think, with with animals and indeed puppets than often with people. So, um, uh, you know, there's clearly something wrong with me there, but I, I I celebrated that and enjoyed that a lot. And I think it gives you a, a, it's almost a you know, a sort of shamanistic thing. You identify with 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 animals. I always like pretending to be um, an animal rather than a superhero. I always wanted to be the fox or the badger or whatever. And I was very lucky um, when, as a young man, I met one of my idols. My writing idols was Ted Hughes, the um, the poet, the um, who, who died some years ago. And he, he wrote a, a, a poem called The Thought Fox, which perhaps you know. And I met him a couple of times and he's, t- he's given different versions of this. But the version I love is that he woke, he woke up one night and there was a, a giant fox standing by his bed about six foot tall. And it said to him, you're killing us, you know, take care of us. And when he woke up in the morning, he thought, well, that God, that was a dream. Uh, but then he looked on the floor and there were giant bloody paw prints leaving his bedroom. And uh, and he said, and then I sat down and I wrote The Thought Fox, which was probably one of his biggest early poems that launched his career. And I always loved that story and I completely identified with it. So that was that was a, a big moment for me in my writing life. And, um, and for many years, I, I did write primarily for children, you know, TV dramas and and books um, until I, I, I also wrote adult things. Tell us a bit about that, Steve. Tell us a bit about that because you've you've mentioned puppets, which is fascinating, and I'm interested to to hear a little bit about your connection to to puppets and puppetry, um, and also what your you you're talking a lot about your writing life, and I guess it sounds like you're 
compartmentalizing a little bit there. There's parts of your life which weren't writing and parts of your life that are. Um, wh- when did your writing life start? Tell us about how that happened and, and your journey. I think it's, uh, for me, it started with the relationship between language and survival. Um, I, I went to quite a rough school in North London um, and it was a great education, but it was tough. And um, I, one of the things I always refused to do, I'm not a brave person at all, but I never wanted to join a gang. And joining a gang was obviously a way of protecting yourself from the bullies and stuff. But I never wanted to do that. So I think I valued my independence more than my safety. But what I did learn is that if you could make someone laugh or you could tell them a story, then they tended not to beat you up and they might even befriend you. So you get the, the tough kid who's, who takes you on as a friend. So very early on, I, I thought there is a relationship. I mean, I didn't rationalise this as a child, but there is a relationship between language and survival. And I think that went very deep in me. Um, and so that's all I ever wanted to do, really. And um, uh, and I think that's still true. There is a relationship between language and survival. And the only the only other thing I ever wanted to be, if I couldn't be a writer, was a, a vet. Um, but I wasn't very good at cutting up things in biology, so I wasn't very good at that. But if you wait long enough, everything comes back to you. Because you know, 25 years later, I was asked by um, Hutchinson's uh, to to if I was interested in writing a, a series of children's book about a vet. So actually, I got my dream. Ah. I spent three weeks at a veterinary surgeon's watching the operations. And I was just, I was just, uh, I went straight back to my childhood. I was entranced and, and I was given a job to do. For example, there was a, they wanted to take the x-ray of a tortoise and the tortoise kept walking off the x-ray plate. So I had to gaffer tape the tortoise down so they could get an x-ray off him. <laughs> and of course, you know, doing an operation on an animal, it's just like a real surgery. There's the greyhound, you know, with the anaesthetist to make sure they're okay. So I was very, um, you know, I've been lucky like that. And that, that, that writing about animals has just been a theme that's come that's come up um, perennially in, in, in my life. In fact, I, I wrote a series of crime fiction books um, in which the main character is called Rook because he's a, a predatory bird-like character. So I think it's always there hovering in the background. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And is it well, I guess sort of children's literature is synonymous with animals. And so you've kind of ended up in that direction as well in some of your books, but not not in those novels by the sounds of it. No, not in those. No, no, no. no. it was, um, yeah. it, it was, uh, but, but nevertheless, the, 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 you know, the, the, the animalistic or the bird imagery stayed. And it was, uh, you know, you never know what's going to happen, do you? I, I wrote a, a, a film for the BBC many years ago called. And I called it Hawk, but they changed it to Hawkins. And um, and some years later, I went to a publisher with an idea, and I could tell within two minutes that this man was completely bored with my idea that I thought was great. And uh, he, um, and I thought, well, I'm okay. I've just wasted a day coming down to London, but nevertheless, I'll keep talking. And in the end, he got so bored, he he picked up my CV and started looking through it. And he said, "Oh, you wrote that Hawkins thing?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "I like that." Um, he said, how about we commission a series of books about that character and we can change the name? So, you know, I went in with one idea. I was completely rejected. You always have to learn to deal with rejection, I think, as a, as a, as a writer, as I'm sure you know. It's, it's just a tough world. But I came out with something else 
um, which was heartening. And and there's a parallel. I mean, I, I hear that a lot from from writers and um, people that and people in the arts generally. I think that they that they need to. You kind of need to stick at it. You need to find a way of doing it. And that conversation maybe is a good example of that. That you you stuck at the conversation even though you thought maybe you're on the road to nowhere. But let's just keep talking anyway and see what happens. And actually something did um so sticking at it sounds like quite an important thing has there been has there been moments with it sounds like you've been writing for quite a long time and you've been a pen for hire and you've done various different types of things some of them yeah. it sounds like you've kind of created yourself and just got on with and other things have been commissions um what have there been moments where it's where you felt like stopping or you kind of had enough of that or you wanted to throw down and I guess how have you overcome that along the way um, I I mean I, well, I had probably eight nine years of things being sent back to me of rejections so that toughened me up um you know if you want your ego soothing then I, I don't think doing what I do is a good career move um but then suddenly a door opened I got a tv series and a book and a book deal and then I was launched as it were yeah but uh, since then certainly there have been periods where I, I've I've never wanted to give up but I had a very unhappy year four or five years writing films I got offered a film and I thought oh great you know off to the states I'll have a mansion in Bel-Air mansion next next year and it took me a year or two to to learn that in, in a lot of movies, certainly um, in, in North American movies, the, the, you're, you're, as a writer, you're at the, just above catering in terms of the pecking order. Yes. And that most directors don't like because they want to write the script. So, and often I didn't get paid. Um, I, and a lot of films, um, I'm sure I shouldn't say this, but a lot of films are about money laundering. So they don't care whether they're successful. So I had very, five very unhappy years doing that, but I never wanted to give up. And I just came back and television had changed by the time I got back so I did a few things but then I went back to writing books and and uh and I've been very happy doing that and I I, I do I mean I do feel I was interested that you said you went to drama college because I always feel that um what I'm doing with and that's why I like doing different things whether it's a children's book or a crime thriller or a comedy or a serious tragedy um it's it's like putting on a different mask and you just explore who you are behind that mask. I think, um, you know, we've all got multiple characters, I think. And with the children's writing, I can let that kind of fun, anarchic set side of myself go. And if I'm doing something more meditative, that all, then then it's a, it's a different mask. I was very lucky um, for uh, when I was very young. I, I worked, I went to a couple of workshops, workshops with a, a dramaturg called uh, Keith Johnstone. Oh yeah, I love Keith Johnston. Yeah, and he it's just wonderful. And he, uh, he he had one of one of his big themes, as you know, was the freedom of the mask. You know, people think if you put on a mask, you're hiding something. Well, in a sense, you are. But he, he always said, if you put a mask on people, they will say and do things that they wouldn't normally do. You know, on at the extreme level, that's the Ku Klux Klan, or or sort of the executioner. But at the other extreme, it's the clown or the dressing up for fun. So it, the, the world of the mask is a very eclectic pantomime of human possibilities. And I always feel I'm doing that with writing. Oh, who am I going to be today? And uh, 
And yeah, I, I love those stories of Charles Dickens walking around his study shouting yes. because he's trying out the characters. Yeah, well, and uh, Charles Dickens, of course, was a bit of an actor, wasn't he? He kind of enjoyed that, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the playing out his part. Um, it's really interesting that you say that because I think and it's something uh, I'm massively inspired by Keith Johnson or I was, um, and I've worked in, and this is not about me, but it's interesting the connection that I've worked in theatre with Mask for a very long time. Um, and the it um, is incredibly powerful, but also when I, when I read books or when I look at actors uh, creating characters, it it's those that can kind of play with the idea of the masks that the characters are work, wearing and what's underneath those masks that really gives depth sometimes as well to some of those characters and i think i mean dickens i often find people i i think his characters are really quite broad and but he he's not afraid of showing us the kind of ridiculous mask that this character wears most of the time because that's how they survive but but we know there's more to them than that as well you know and i think that that's that's great writing when you come across that absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. you know life is theater and creating a mask and i I mean, I certainly do that even with a children's book. I, I mean, I'll go through something and I'll think, you know, what is it like to walk across this lawn if you're a hedgehog? You know, what are the obstacles? Oh, brilliant. You know, what, what are the things that might get you? What are the, you know, what might you be thinking and feeling? Um, what, do you, what, do you, what are you doing it for in the first place? Are you looking for grubs? Or are you trying to get out? Or are you trying to get in somewhere else? And, you know, uh, are you thinking about your family? And suddenly, you know, you're... you're you're in another reality and you're finding different things in yourself. And you're making, you're making it more, um, you're making, you're creating a difficulty, aren't you? You're creating a drama. You're finding an edge. I guess the albino hedgehog has even more obstacles to overcome on that journey across the lawn than the, than your average hedgehog. Yes, he does. Yeah. And that was, that was something that, 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 uh, my son suggested to me, he, you know, he, he, he said, um, uh, you know, he, he was very diplomatic. He, he said, Dad, I think you're a great writer, an amazing writer. He said, but I think you need to reacquaint yourself with the modern world and with what kids are doing. And that was a very good thing to say. So he did it very diplomatically. So I, I spent an hour or two with him and we he helped me come up with some of the characters. So, you know, the albino hedgehog is clearly about someone who looks different. Yeah. And, and how are they tolerated or, or accepted? And there's also, there's a cat in it called Whiskey, who is um, an entitled and self-consuming, self-obsessed teenager. So she has an earring and she's got multiple mobile phones and she keeps starting WhatsApp groups on her phone. And so she's... Uh, she, 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 she's a very modern kind of phenomenon. And, of course, that was interesting and fun for me because I started looking at, at, at young people and, and, and what, what do kids read now? What do they look at? You know, what are their interests and their obsessions? And so, you know, it, it, was, it was an education for me too. And, you know, if you're not learning something, then you're probably not writing to your, no. to your best ability. No, that's really interesting. And, again, that's, it's, it's, it sounds like listening is a really important part of of writing in that and and it's not it's not necessarily always direct feedback and your son was direct in a very kind way but um but just listening to what's around and and responding to that and making sure that 
I guess sort of making sure that your your book is in or your writing is inhabiting the world that now exists. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And mm. trying to keep, you know, trying to find a, vo- a different voice for everyone. I, I do think that, um, you know, like a lot of writers, I still write poetry. And in fact, I, I began my career as a, you know, what's called a performance poet, which often means you're writing poetry that's not good enough to publish. But I was the opening act for um, John Cooper Clark for a while. and uh, That's not he, bad he, going. Uh, I, it's not bad going. No. No. Years later, I, I don't... He never remembered me, I don't think, because he had a serious, I mean, he would openly admit this, he had a serious um, heroin addiction problem when I was working with him, but <laughs> he still managed to perform like Judy Garland, he'd come on and do it. But but anyway, the, the point of that is I th- think that writing poetry forces you to think much more economically about language, and that helps in writing dialogue, and it also cr- makes it crisper, I think, and 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 makes you think about individuating it to to different characters. So that's always a kind of rule of thumb for me. And uh, you know, given that I do have a great love of theatre, then I do I do try out the voices as I'm going along. And sometimes I, I'm not sure I'm not sure who I am at all, but it doesn't matter. Have you ever written for theatre? Yes, I have, yeah. And that I mean that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The the last thing I had professionally um, performed was a Christmas show at the um, the Watermill Theatre in, in Newbury in Berkshire, and it was called Duffy and Matilda's Stupendous Space Adventure. And it was about two puppets that get animated on, on Christmas Eve, and before Christmas they have to discover a lost melody somewhere in the universe. Um, and that took me right back to childhood. You know, I thought of all the puppets that I used to have and uh, the way I would talk to them and, you know, they talk back to me or they'd, puppets are terrific therapy. I think, you know, I I think often psychologists use them if they're working with children who've been traumatized, but I think you're just putting something on your hand and talking to it and saying, what should I do about this? Mm -hmm. You know, does she still love me? Well, she might do, you know, but I'm, you know, you ought to, Think about you know you characterizing the world of animals and and objects. I think is is a great way to get through life without going completely off the rails. Pup- Except that probably is going completely off the rails. There's something about the puppet that is almost it it's it kind of is it's like it's a bit different to mask. I think the the mask and the puppet are an interesting thing because the mask is yeah. sometimes hiding, yeah. but of course revealing, as you know from Keith Johnston. But the but the the puppet has a um, it has this ability to speak truth. It's more of a fool. It's going to tell you that you look ugly or you look yeah. stupid, even yeah. if somebody else isn't. You know, it's going to play. It's going to give you that truth. Um, yeah, it's it's, and that's what kids like about it. I think because kids sense truth, don't they? Yes. No, I think yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with um, watching Punch and Judy, and they've been made much more safe over the years. Yes. And, you know, I I mean, I, I get that but that's another debate. But yeah. what I did love was the the, the permission to do um, forbidden things. And, you know, that seemed to me to, to go to the heart of what theatre is. Yeah. You know, it's cathartic. You can watch Hamlet murdering everyone he comes into contact with, so you don't go home and murder your own family. <laughs> you know, it, it, there's an, a kind of purging and an exorcistic function of theatre and I think puppets did that for children you mm. know and I can remember with a friend we would you know bash each other up with puppets and 
And a big moment for me was I remember looking out the bedroom window when I was a boy at the, at my, into my neighbor's garden. There was a little girl lived next door, sweet little girl. And she came out with her doll and she put it on the lawn and she got a stick and she smashed, she beat that crap out of this thing and then she buried it. Wow. And I was horrified that little you know, little uh, Daisy who lived next door could do this. But then an hour later, she came out singing and she dug it up and she nursed it back to health. That's right. And I thought, I don't know what the hell is going on there, but there's a great Stephen King kind of story <laughs> of, of destruction and violence, but then resurrection and renewal. And uh, so, you know, it's an abbreviated form of... Of, of a much bigger story, I think. But oh. you're, yeah, you're right about puppets. Oh, that's brilliant, Steve. It's so interesting hearing you speak. We're kind of running out of time, um, and I think it would be it would be just nice to ask you because, again, uh, for, for, with other authors, I've come across this as well. Some people have had very little experience of writing, and they're writing books for the first time. We've got and and someone like you's got lots and lots of experience and have done things in lots and lots of different ways, and clearly very experienced. You're getting support, some support from the book writers' resource. That's obviously something that's been useful yeah. to you. So, what what is the support you need? Because it kind, of, frankly, you kind of look at you and go, "Well, what this guy's got lots of experience. What what the support does he need?" So, what are you getting from that relationship? Uh, this is the first time I've worked with book writers' resource with David and, and Mandy, and um, I have to say it's been nothing but good. What what I get from them is. Um, uh, feedback in terms of the text, um, brilliant advice on on things that matter a hell of a lot, like presentation. What is this going to look like? And what they're very good at doing is getting you to interrogate what you want to happen with this book. Who is it for? Um, how do you want it to be received? Who's your ideal reader? And they're questions I think that every writer should ask, but you, you tend not to. You just get on with what you're doing. So I think what they're very good at is... Um, you know, a, a, a sort of cinematic stuff is close-ups of what you're doing, but then pulling back to the big picture and saying, you know, do you do you want it to be placed here? How can we help with this? And um, and also just regular catch-ups, which is a new experience for me. You know, how is it going? You know, I like the last things you sent in. Um, that's been a that's been a, a, a bit of a revelation for me because. Um, my other experience of that is mostly in television where you go along to a script meeting and fundamentally it's all critical. Right. And I get that, you know, you're, they're paying you. They, they know what they want. With David and Mandy, it's, um, it's softer, but, I, I, but, I don't, but, but by that, I, 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 it's deliberately softer because they try and get inside what you're trying to do, not what they want, and then help you to deliver that for yourself primarily and then hopefully for a readership so um that's what i've got from them so far it's been very good great great and um and where's i guess with all your experience if someone's watching this hopefully somebody will be that is or listening to this that is um on their journey as a writer starting out um what I guess what's the piece of advice that you what's the main thing people can do um, in that position to keep going like you've managed to do? I would think two things. One is, I think, to um, listen to everyone. Um, I think I do think that when I started, I was probably a little and I, I didn't take criticism well. But 
what I've learned over the years is that you listen to everybody's feedback uh, um, and some of it will be good and some of it will be bad, but, but take on board everything. Be neutral when you're listening to, 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 to that. And the other thing I would say is always have the next project ready to go. So when you finish something, don't spend the next six months or year um, trying to push that out there and sell it. Get going on something else straight away. I was very, I was very businesslike when I started. I, you know, in the, in the days before computers, I had a little filing cabinet. If I wrote a poem, I'd have six places to send it. And if it got sent back, I'd tick that off. And I think that's great. I've still got five places to go. So I think you, you, you know, to to be a bit businesslike about what you're doing. And, uh, and the other thing, of course, is don't give up. Yeah, <laughs> I think that sounds like brilliant advice, and particularly that. Um... Because it can be quite a lonely place if you're, again, as any artist, I think if you're waiting around um, for something to happen or be produced or the next stage from whatever it is you've made or somebody to buy that book or somebody to come and see you play or whatever it is. Uh, and that, and by thinking of the next project, I suppose it allows you to not have the anxiety and not sit in that anxiety of the current work that you're, that you're in. So that sounds like really, really useful advice. And again, I think the 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 stock keeping stock of what you've made and keeping hold of it because you're uh, thinking back to your conversation with that tv producer now uh, what have you done before oh well let's let's do a remake of that you know that you're you're yeah it's it's valuable stuff even if it's not being used anymore or if you haven't if it hasn't been used it's still valuable so keep hold of it um yeah that sounds really useful absolutely yeah, yeah. recycling is is a great rule of thumb i think yeah, yeah. yeah uh, if you if you've had an idea, you know, you write a you write a TV script and nobody wants it. Well, perhaps it wants to be a novel. You know, uh, why not? You know, don't 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 throw out the baby with the bath bathwater. You know, yeah. keep your ideas recycling each other, and they may come home to roost. Brilliant. Thanks, Steve. And once again, do you want to just tell us where we can get um, the Urban Fox investigates and where people can find out? where to get all of the things that you've produced over the years okay yeah um well most of my books are are listed on amazon under my name steve attridge and um the urban fox we're we're, we're going to launch it in about a week to 10 days time and uh, that will be available on, on amazon hopefully some a few some bookshops too um but also from me on my website steveattridge.com you can always contact anyone can contact me there and they can order stuff from from that too and i'll get back to them uh, as soon as i can brilliant and thanks very much for coming along and joining us on the book writers resource podcast steve it's been really nice to meet you thank you so much thank you he had so many such a wide degree of experiences sure yeah and such clearly such a talented writer oh he is he's a yeah he's a very good writer i've read i read his first book i read of his was called sometimes i disappear dystopian novel i've read his god stewart god rod stewart and me which is hilarious yeah um obviously the the urban fox he's written recently and gonna be set fight. he's just and he's such an entertaining person he yeah. really is a real joy to work with he's he's self-deprecating as well isn't he, <laughs> he, he, he just yeah. he's, he, he's just a nice bloke really nice bloke yeah yeah, yeah 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 so i mean and i asked him this question i suppose you know it, i could i did 
it was a bit like, well, you've done so much writing. Yeah. Like, do you need help from anybody? And it's not the writing you're helping him with, is it? Not, it's well, not not the the full, not the kind of putting no, it together thing. No, I no. mean when I when I did the first, you know, lay person's edit of his a story, there was there was nothing in there really. I, you know, writing the back of nothing blurb, to change. Nothing, no, no, no. And yeah. the back, I mean, he's he's so. I mean, his characters are so entertaining, you know. Of course, we all know germs come from Germany. Ha ha! You know, yeah. it's just so delightful yeah. as one of the and the characters he's created. Again, David did the back cover blurb, and I just made a few suggestions. It's always good to have another set of eyes on something because a lot of the time you can't see for looking. And what's been a real joy working with Steve is he came through our website. He made a one line inquiry: "Do you help with publishing?" Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, I don't know where this is going because it just seemed to come out of the blue. And um, we had a conversation with Steve, went to meet him uh, you know, over in Leamington. Um, and yeah, in terms of the support we've given him, really, it's been a lot of, he had three months worth of um, marketing support. So I came up with suggestions because he's not, um, in terms of him getting the message out there about his stories, he's got a real you know, his back catalogue is massive, but he's not the kind of person that blows his trumpet a lot. And an author has to blow, learn to show off really and to blow the trumpet and to leverage the contacts that they've made and to brag, if you like. I mean, he, he has got lots to brag about because some of the stuff he's worked on, he's worked on the beer, he's worked on, you know, film, TV. I think um, there's a thing sometimes with artists, generally speaking, that you almost feel like, you're quite privileged to do what you do mm. for a living anyway. And you feel lucky that you've managed to do it. You know, mm. we've all kind of, I, I, I imagine Steve's probably been through the mill with that and like, yeah. you know, had moments where he's not working or hasn't got any writing. So the fact that he seems to regularly be able to do that now, you feel so lucky. Mm. You don't really want to brag about it too much. You don't want to, because you, you almost feel like it might, it might be ephemeral. It might mm. just disappear the minute mm. you start talking about it. Yeah. yeah. But then he's created his own looks. He's put the work in, you know. Mm. He's, he's, he loves writing. Obviously, he talks about his childhood and his imagined world and uh, the characters that he creates are so delightful. Um, but, yeah, it's it, it's making suggestions, ideas and tapping into network. So, as an example, I've got a friend who works at the RSPCA and I said to Steve, should we, you know, maybe approach the RSPCA, see if they want to take your book on? And they've just started having a conversation, not mm. sure where that goes. So I've introduced the two. That's and, interesting. So mm. there's something in... And uh, and this might be something about marketing here, actually, Mandy. Mm. So, so thinking about what's in your book now obviously steve's book is, is sure. about animals it's yeah, about yeah. Um, foxes mm. and uh, maybe some i haven't read the book but maybe there's even some cruelty to animals in it in some way or another it's adapt it's about animals adapting to humans encroaching on their space it's, you know yeah. and how the animals in his book to an extreme degree i mean the urban fox drinks coffee that comes down a drain pipe from the local coffee shop right you yeah. know and he's oh today it's a nice you know it's a nice espresso today or yeah. tomorrow might be a mocha, you know, you can yeah. imagine. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, fi but so finding that connection between yeah. what's the content of your book and actually maybe there is an organisation. Sure. Be that a charity, be that a business yeah. that would that would support. Well, it resonates. Because it resonates, yes, yeah, yes. absolutely. And yeah. also, you know, saying to Steve things like he's got his, um, you know, going into schools, um, 
he's he's done workshops. He does workshops in Greece on how to write. He's entertained children in school. You know, as a conversation I was having with him, oh yeah, I'm quite happy to go into Coville Can and and do a do a lesson for kids. Mm. Well, I didn't know he did that. You know, yeah. so it's doing an audit of everything you've done, I guess, as an author, and doing every do an audit of what your experience in life has been and how that can relate outside of the actual book and how it's you know it's it's telling your story for it to resonate with your audience but then actually saying well you know will the RSPCA be interested in this you know there's a big thing going on about you know the the urban fox is vegetarian that's gonna some people are gonna love that some people are think well that's never gonna happen you know so it's it's learning to think about where your target market is where they might be hanging out and looking at opportunities so independent bookshops for example you know every author i've spoken to go and talk to your local bookshop and in your when you're in there make sure you buy a book because i've spoken to independent bookshop owners and they've said you'd be amazed how many people come in and ask for help but don't even buy a book you know it's really obvious yeah. stuff that yeah. you think well actually yeah. i'm helping them they're going to want to help me and then you know Going into schools, talking to headmasters, talking, getting, you know, what your network is and reaching out to your own network mm. and being brave as an author as well, you know. So, so send maybe sending a text, text message to everybody in your contact list saying, can you help with blurb? You'd be amazed how many people want to help you. It feels really awkward asking for help because we're, a lot of the time we're also very independent. But if you do reach out and ask people, they will want to help you, mm. you know. Um, the other thing that, Little things like saying to Steve, you know, you could do a competition, come up with an animal, come up with a character with an name for next story, and I'll include it in my next story. So you're engaging with your audience straight away and you're drawing them to you, you know. Yeah. There's a pub a, a pub in Leamington called the Urban Fox. I said, have you thought about doing a launch there, you know? So it's finding things that resonate and a lot of marketing really is just about helping people and they'll want to help you back. Mm. That sounds like really useful advice. So actually looking out for the things that resonate around yeah. you. And that might be that might be something you do after you've written the book, when you've kind of you created the the little world that's just in your head. But then you're like, oh, where does this world fit mm-hmm. in the real world? Who's mm-hmm. been like most? But also you might use that as a way of sort of planning your next book, thinking yeah. about the characters, thinking about like what's the world like at the moment? Who's yeah. gonna really be interested in yeah, this? Yeah. What do I want to change? Like, um, do I want kids to think about stuff differently? Yes. Maybe include that in your book. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, use, useful tips there, I think, Mandy. And also research. So, you know, Steve's genre is, is probably from seven or eight upwards. What's happening on YouTube? Who's out there telling stories? You know, I remember Jack and Ori. We, you know, all the housewives talk about um, Tom Hardy telling bedtime stories and all the mums are watching it with the kids. You know, so who can sit in a cabin at the end of the garden and tell a story that kids on YouTube are going to listen to? Mm. I did that the one day. I didn't know my nieces and nephews. Oh, we really like your YouTube video, Auntie Mandy. Well, okay, I might do that again. You know, so it's you've got to put stuff out there and try and test test the water with things, mm. really. Mm. In the same way that, you know, another author might give away two or three chapters to entice somebody in. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you. The Book Writers Resource podcast features advice from Mandy Ward and David Hambling. If you would like to hear more from them, visit www.tbwr.com.
tbwr.co.uk or email info at tbwr.co.uk. This was a Listening Shelf production presented by Ian Pringle.